Romans chapter 9, 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Good morning, Grace Life. How's everybody doing today? All right. Well, leave your Bibles open to Romans chapter 9. My name is Tommy, and I am the lead pastor here at Grace Life Church, and I couldn't be more excited to continue our, our study through the book of Romans, and we've called this study Engaged, and we've called this section uh, specifically chapter 9, but maybe we're going to extend it through chapters 10 and 11, because it seems to be a one, one unit there. We've called this God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign plan, and today is, I think, message four in God's sovereign plan, and as Cliff mentioned, I did not want to rush through this. I think God has a lot for us to take away from these first few verses. A lot of people either skip altogether to chapter nine, because there's some challenging topics that just blow your mind to try and understand. Some people love chapter 9. They can't get there quick enough and skip right over these first five verses. I wanted to take the middle view and just take it all in together. So here's what I'm going to do. Let's pray and we'll jump in. Romans 9, 1 through 5, okay? Heavenly Father, we need your spirit to come and teach us, to fill us, to open our eyes and our heart, our understanding, to illuminate us. Lord, you are the author of Scripture. You are the one who transforms the human heart. You are the one who enlightens us, Lord, uh, the right way, the way Christianity tells us to be enlightened, Lord. You quicken our hearts. You make us soft and pliable and open and receptive to what your word is seeking to do. So I pray today that we would all receive the implanted word, which is able to save our soul. We would receive it with meekness, Lord, and we would be completely open to whatever it is your spirit wants to bring today, whether it's comfort, whether it's conviction, whether it's a challenge, whether it's a reassurance, whether it's a, a new promise we haven't uh, chewed on before, just accomplish all of your good purpose, Lord. Your word is like rain. We trust it's going to accomplish the, the purpose that you sent it for even this day. And I pray for those at home who aren't here with us in person, but they're at home, Lord, I pray that the technology would work, uh, that the live stream wouldn't get interrupted, that the Audio sounds would, would be balanced and they could hear and follow along with us and feel like they're as much a part of what is going on here as is possible. Thank you for the common grace of technology and, and the media platforms that we can use for your kingdom. And I thank you for the guests that came today, Lord. I look forward to meeting all the new people, the, the new faces you're bringing here, Lord. And, and only you know why you brought them here, Lord, whether it's a sense of wanting to reconnect to the faith whether they just feel this overwhelming burden, they need to be with the people of God, they need to be with the church, they want to hear the word of God, they don't know where else to go, whether they feel guilty, whether they feel empty, whether they want to be renewed and restored, or some other reason, Lord, they're here, and we trust that, that you've brought them here, and we want to be good stewards of their time together. Help us to do that in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, years ago, a man that I served with called me in a crisis. He married a very sweet lady who at the time of their engagement and wedding had a teenage son who was enrolled in the military and he was abroad serving overseas. She had done the best that she could as a single mom. She stayed single for a long time. Her first marriage didn't work out, but she had raised her son in the gospel on Christian principles, gave him a biblical worldview, and uh, a few years had gone by, several years, and now her son was coming home. He was on extended leave. He hadn't been home in a long time. They haven't really communicated that well. And he was coming home to something quite different than he left. His mom was married, and they had two little, two little kids in the home. So things were different. He wasn't a teenager anymore, and life in the military honestly had changed him. Those of you who have served can attest to that. He was a soldier. He had experienced the hardships of war. He had seen a lot of evil. He had been in a lot of conflicts. He had faced death and suffering. And he had shared some things with his mother and his new stepdad when he got home that left them unsettled. And so they wanted to talk with a pastor in person as soon as possible. And I was the pastor on call that week. And so off I went. I said a prayer. I got in my car. I got my Bible. And, you know, you never know what to expect when you make a house call like that. But he was my friend. He and I served together. So when I pulled into the street, my friend was outside pacing. That was his thing, man. He was a pacer. And I could tell he was agitated. And I can tell that he was afraid. He just looked really scared. He looked really sad. And he met me in the driveway. And before he could even greet me, his stepson stormed out of the house. He had his keys in his hand. And my friend stopped him and he said, tell him, tell him what you told me. And he said, it's not a big deal. He said, no, you go ahead, you tell him. Awkward. It's one of those awkward moments. You feel like you're instantly a mediator with a situation you don't know what the heck's going on, right? He said, it's not a big deal. I don't believe in God anymore. I'm an, I'm an atheist. Don't take it so personal. I just don't believe in that stuff. It's fine for you, but leave me alone. That was the argument. But the stepdad was not having it. He wanted me to meet with his stepson. He wanted me to straighten him out. He wanted me to serve him notice. He wanted me to make him believe and not so many words, if you know what I'm saying. And look, I, I hope that this story, I share this with my wife, and she said, you know, when you share a story like that, you don't, you don't want people to think you're throwing him under the bus. I'm not. In fact, I'm sure we'll all be there. Some of you have already been there. When you, somebody really close to you changes the worldview or maybe comes to realize maybe they were never a Christian to begin with and all this Bible stuff is hokey to them. You know, your first, your first feeling is probably you feel helpless. You feel out of control. And that sometimes stimulates anger and betrayal and grief and all these emotions you don't really know what to do with. That's where my friend was. So I hope it doesn't sound like I'm throwing him under the bus. This is just a story to help us wrap our minds around what I think Paul's trying to teach us in, in chapter 9. So I looked at this stepson. He was a committed soldier. He was sporting his uh, camouflage fatigues, his hat, combat boots, patches, haircut. He was committed. He was loyal. He was all in. He was all in to being loyal to his country and to serving them on whatever way duty required. What he wasn't into was somebody trying to shoehorn him into a religious commitment and a worldview that he had objections to. He wasn't into that at all. But 
I knew that he was leaving anyway. He had his keys in his pocket. So I thought, man, how can I defuse this situation? I said, hey, bro, won't you, you want to just take a ride with me? Just take a, a friendly chat. Just get, just cool down. He goes, okay, I'll do that. So we got in the car. And I invited him to, to go with me, and off we drove. Now, look, I'm not the hero in this story at all. <laughs> in fact, I was just a kid then myself. I was in my 20s, and I didn't really know what to say to him. I just knew I needed to, to get him away from his stepdad, you know? I wish I could rewind the tape, and I wish I could play back the things that I, hopefully, wisdom, experience, maturity have taught me. I wish I could go back, and I wish I could say, hey, thank you, man, for serving your country. Thank you so much. I'm not a soldier. I can't, I can't even imagine all the things that you have endured, especially being and in, in serving in a time of war, you know. There's always a skirmish, and he was in one of those skirmishes overseas. Uh, I also wish I would have asked him, like, hey, if you don't mind me, me asking, I know your mom raised you with a, with a biblical worldview, and something changed, man. Do you mind? I don't want to pry, but, but can I ask, man, what happened? What makes Christianity so objectionable to you? Can we talk? Are you open to having a dialogue about that? I wish I would have said those things. I wish I would have put a rock in his shoe. I didn't. You know, I just hung out with him, and we talked about music, and see, I told you I'm no hero here. We didn't really talk a lot about the gospel. I just wanted to get him away, calm him down, uh, and then I brought him back and was hoping things would be better, and they weren't. They really weren't better. The, the, the stepdad and the mom, they were grieved, and, and I wish I would have talked with him, too, about why things were so different when he came back, because he said, man, things have changed. Mom and this marriage, she's like this zealous trying to convert me. He said, she wasn't really like that before, and I wish I could have explained to them, look, there's two little kids in your house now, and they're concerned for them, and they're viewing you like, what are you going to teach them? What example are you going to set? Are you going to introduce agnosticism or atheism to them? I wish I would have said all of that, but as it were, things remain awkward there, and his dad, his stepdad kind of gave him an an ultimatum, and they made this weird, awkward um, stalemate, and he eventually left, and he went back to where he felt the most at home, in the army. When he left the army, which was his family, his community, his culture, he felt appreciated there, he felt admired there, he felt understood there, he felt loved there. He left that and he came home to what was once his family and there he felt rejected. He didn't feel welcome, he didn't feel understood, he didn't feel admired. He was made to feel like he was a threat and that he made them angry and they just wished he would live according to their rules so that life would be presumably better for them, not him. That was his perspective. And I can't say that it was entirely wrong because I've shared that perspective too toward unbelievers. Have you? Specifically those the closest to you. You're not really that grieved or broken or in that much in agony over their unbelief. You're irritated. You're annoyed. And you want them to just change. We just tr- change. Just repent. Just believe so that things would be better and things would be peaceful. Well, as we, as we shared last week, Romans chapter 9, the first five verses here, Paul, Paul is giving us a perspective on the, on the unbelief of those closest to him. His kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews. He was not a cold, detached, academic apostle, Paul wasn't. He was completely engaged, and he was brokenhearted. Like his master before him, Paul was a weeping prophet. Like Jeremiah, like Jesus, he lamented over the unbelief of his country. So let's learn from Paul's example. How can we, and and I don't want to make any mistake here, this is what I'm after. How can you and I cultivate and foster a soft, tender heart of agony that will hopefully culminate in prayer and evangelism toward those 
living in unbelief, those that are the closest to us. For Paul, it was the Jews. How can we do that? So we, we started to answer three questions last week, and I couldn't read it last week. I've enlarged the font this week, and I put it in my notes, so now I'm good, all right? Three questions. This is the sermon outline. Number one, does your heart, don't think about anybody else's heart but yours, does your heart break over the unbelief around you? And I would even add, because Paul teaches this elsewhere, he says, in, inside me, that is in my flesh, no good thing dwells. Does your heart break over your unbelief? Because if you're soft towards your unbelief, that helps you be more empathetic toward the unbelief of those around you. Amen? It does. So that's question number one. Does your heart break over the unbelief around you, or does it just annoy you and irritate you and make you angry? Because that comes natural. It does. That comes very natural. The brokenness, the agony, that's, that's not so natural. That's supernatural. But that is you being formed and conformed and shaped into the image of Jesus, who knew the sovereign plan. Jesus knew God's sovereign plan, but he still wept over Jerusalem, and he still extended the gospel invitation to everyone that he encountered. And Paul, same way. Paul's about to tell us all about God's sovereign plan, divine election, foreknowledge, all of that, and still Paul is weeping over unbelief. So however far you think you may be into understanding the eternal and hidden and secret decrees of God and, and divine election, you should still weep over unbelief, or maybe you haven't even begun to fathom the mysteries of the gospel, right? That's what Paul's teaching here. Does your heart break over the unbelief around you? Here's what he says, chapter 9, verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I mean, he's stacking up the affirmations here. He wants you to know, like, look, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Paul's, maybe he understood preachers embellish things sometimes, right? Amen? Yeah, they do. <laughs> Trust me. Sometimes preachers tend to embellish things and overrate things. And Paul's saying, look, I am as sincere as I can be. As an apostle, I'm laying bare my soul here. God knows my conscience, the Holy Spirit, I'm laying it all out there. And one of the reasons Paul is doing this, it's two reasons really. One, one is because there's always going to be a pocket of his kinsmen out there that say, Paul, you're a traitor. You're a traitor. Your own people, the Jews, the Old Testament, Paul, the patriarchs, you're abandoning and rejecting all of that for this Jesus figure. He's trying to tell them like, number one, no, I'm not. He's going to show the next few verses the most Jewish thing you can do is embrace Jesus as your Messiah. Amen? So he's saying that I'm not a traitor, but the second thing is he wants them to know his brokenheartedness and his love and his anguish over them. And I think there's, there's some instruction there. Not only do you have a broken heart for the unbelief around you, but do those people around you see that and experience that and know that? Or are they like my friend's stepson and they just say, I just irritate them and I make them angry. Why should I even be here? They don't want me to be here. I think there, there should be some expression of brokenheartedness over unbelief. I, I, I surprised myself this week, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you're like me, maybe you get so calloused over the death that just seems to surround us. You know, I heard when the earthquake hit in Turkey, the morning that it hit, and I heard on a news, news talk radio that 1,300 people uh, were on the death toe, and I thought, man, that's so tragic, that's terrible, I uttered a prayer for them, and just kind of went my way, and then a week went by, and then I heard the death toll was up to 13,000, and that blew my mind. I mean, 13,000 people died in this, in this earthquake in Turkey and, and Syria. So I prayed again, and then I just kind of forgot about it. 
And then I heard the other day, do you know how many people they have found dead now, confirmed dead, Beth in the Syria and Turkey earthquake? 46,000 people. And I just find myself, I just get so callous to it. That's, if you live in Deland, there's 65, 70,000 people who live there. That's two-thirds of the population of the city. I went to a NASCAR truck race the other night, and I asked my friend who invited me, I said, how many people are in this stadium? He said, 25,000, 30,000. And I looked around, there were waves and rows and rows of people, and I, just, I was just struck with the fact that doesn't even touch how many people have perished in that earthquake. Many of them, maybe most of them, perished in unbelief and stood in the presence of a God they didn't know. And they stood either in their, their own righteousness or had some other viable in their mind excuse for why they, they should be good. Um, it's easy to get callous, man, over the, over the unbelief around us. Does your heart break over unbelief? When was the last time you can remember actually grieving over someone's unbelief? This is what Paul said, though. He goes on. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. So his sorrow is deep, it's profound, and his anguish, it's unceasing. The tense here in, in the grammar is, this is something that's constant. It's not just a passing, oh man, that's terrible, well on with life. That was constantly before him as an apostle, as a Christian. He was well aware of the unbelief of those that were around him all the time. Christians should have deep, genuine, heartfelt anguish. And, and we could ask the question, why? Why, why should be? Because, they're, because the way of the sinner is hard? Sure, sure. That's, that's part of your agony. They're living a hard life. The Bible says that. The way of the sinner is hard. But you know what? The way of the sinner is hard, but the end of the sinner is a nightmare. When they die and they stand before a God that they don't know. It's a nightmare. And that's what Paul really says here. Listen to this. For I could wish that I myself were what? Accursed. The word there in Greek is anathema. It means damned. It means cut off. Being under a curse. To understand what it would mean to be under a curse would mean the whole world would stand up and applaud your damnation. That would be the thrust of being under a curse. It meant you were cut off from God. He has turned his face away from you and stiff-armed you, basically. And what Paul is recognizing is that what, that's where unbelief puts you. Cut off from God if you don't repent forever. So he's recognizing with this anguish, it's not just that the Jews are going to have a hard life, because Jesus says in John 10, 10, I've come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. We can have a better quality of life here and now, right, as a believer in Jesus. But Paul was looking to the very end and he was seeing that they're going to be cut off from God and that's what really broke his heart. There's this divide, this division we talked about last week that the gospel brings from the people closest to you. There's a new, there's a new birth. You have uh, a new perspective on all of life. There's this massive uh, shift, paradigm shift in the way you view things, your worldview, the way you evaluate things, the way you value things, your priorities, right? You're living in a different kingdom now. You've been, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness. You've been transferred into the kingdom of the light of God's son. You have a totally different system of viewing the world. You've got a totally different lens. Your loyalties are different. Your sympathies are different. Your affections are different. And that creates this division between you and the, and the people that are the very closest to you. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword and a set 
a mother against daughter and a son against father and brother against sister. We see that division in the, in the closest relationships we have. And I would even say this. If you haven't known something of that division as a Christian, I think you should question your commitment to the kingdom of God. Because it's, things are different. It's, it's, not just a, it's not superficial division. It's profound. It's deep. It's not political. It's not social, even though there's ramifications there. It's spiritual. It's theological. There's a difference. Something changes. A new order. So are you aware of that division? Well, we covered that point last week, really. That's just review and summary. Here's the second point we never really got into. What sacrifices are you willing to make in order to reach outsiders? Number one, does your heart break? And I would say this. If that first point isn't there, you can forget about the second and third point, right? You're not going to be willing to make any sacrifices. That was kind of the complaint of that young man in the car. He says, man, they're not, doing, they're not willing to do anything to kind of meet me halfway. It's like, I don't want to go to church on Sunday. I don't believe. Why would I want to go to their church on Sunday? I'm not a kid anymore, you know. He said, they're not willing to give any ground to me. And I just think, what was Paul? You say, where are you getting that point in this text? Well, check this out. He says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul's saying, I know it's not possible. It's just a wish, and that's, and that's the force of the, the, the word here in Greek. If it were possible, I, would, I could wish that I myself would be accursed for the sake of all my countrymen, my kinsmen, those closest to me who are now avowed enemies of Christ so that they could be brought in, so that they could have their eyes open, so that they could receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, I would be willing to be damned for them. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? The sacrifices that he was willing to make. And I think it, it begs the question for us, what sacrifices are we willing to make? And I would even say this, which, maybe start here, maybe this is a good place to start. What sacrifices are you able to make? Because Paul knew he couldn't do that. He's not saying this in a vacuum. Paul knew, he's the theologian, he knows you can't trade places with a sinner. He knows he can't do that. He can tell him about the one who did, and that's exactly what he did in every place that he went. Paul did that. He went into the synagogues first, as was his custom. And then if they rejected the message, he shook the dust off of his sandals, shook the folds of his garment, right? And he went to the Gentiles. That was his custom. But Paul was brokenhearted everywhere he went. I was reading in our community group the other night. In Acts 17, Paul went to Athens. He's waiting on Timothy and Silas to join him. And it says he began to walk around the city. And, and it says this. When he saw that the city was given over to idols, he was provoked in his spirit and deeply troubled. Do you remember that passage? So here's the Apostle Paul, and if, and if you're asking the question maybe, okay, okay, Pastor, I know I'm supposed to be brokenhearted, I'm supposed to be willing to make sacrifices, but how do you cultivate that? And, and my answer would be, look around. Look around, pray, first of all, pray, Lord, break my heart over my own unbelief and sin that maybe I can't see. And over the unbelief and sin out there that I can't see and I can't empathize with. What Paul started to do was walk around. I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Alex Montoya. And he lived in L.A. He had a church there. It was a Hispanic church. And he always say, you know, gentlemen, you need to go to the taco stand. And we would all laugh. And he'd say, I'm serious. He'd say, if you feel yourself getting so calloused, so cold, so distant, and more irritated with people than brokenhearted, he said, you go at lunch. Put your sunglasses on, go incognito, don't wear a suit, 
go order a taco and just sit there and listen to the conversations. It'll break your heart. It'll break your heart. You know what? He's right. You just take a break and listen, listen to the water cooler talk. Listen to the things your colleagues are talking about in class. I've heard of this um, kind of an awakening or maybe a revival that's going on at, at the chapel in Kentucky and Asbury. Have you guys read about this or heard about this? It's incredible. It's incredible. I know so many people are quick to be critical and judge, and maybe in their own mind they have good grounds for that because sometimes these things happen and you start to, to, to analyze and, and it's, there's excess and it seems crazy and unorganized and you're thinking, how in the world can a spirit be the author of this? From all accounts, it seems genuine. It seems like the, it, it started out with a worship service at a chapel in Kentucky and the students refused to leave when it was over. And they, they stayed after, and it's biblically based. People are standing up and reading scripture. It's ordered because the leaders there are controlling it. They're not letting people come up to the mic and showboat. It's humble. People are standing up and confessing sin. And, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're singing rich, deep, beautiful uh, Bible-based songs. Uh, but one of the things I read was that some of the younger people that are getting up, some of the things that, that they are confessing to, and the people who are hearing it, sometimes it's unbelievers are wondering in there, what's going on here? Like 1 Corinthians, you know? They're wondering in there. They're not saying these people are out of their mind. They're saying, surely the Spirit of God is in this place, and I didn't know it. And they're confessing what was in their heart. And the people are saying, it's amazing, hearing some of the Gen Zers, is, is what they're calling them, come in there and the anguish and the emptiness and the futility and the vanity. They're saying, I didn't want to, li I didn't want to live anymore. My world is so empty you know, I stay on my phone all day, I see all these stories and platforms and streams, and they know it's disingenuous, they know these people aren't, 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 aren't living it up, they just feel empty, they feel like they're missing out, they feel like, what's the point? And it's impacting the people that are there hearing this, they're thinking, man, I've been a Christian, I had no idea people were going through this. Yeah, they are. They are, that's the unbelief around her, it should break our heart. We're living in a time where people are, are supposed to be the most connected as they've ever been, right? All this technology was supposed to connect us. It was going to be amazing. And people are more broken, more jaded. They're more depressed. I mean, the stats are scary post-COVID, right? They're scary. And it should break our heart, man, if we're paying attention. Paul paid attention. When he was in Athens, he looked around, he saw that there were many idols in the city, and he was deeply troubled. And so what did he do? He said, give me a microphone. They didn't have microphones back then, but they had an Areopagus. And he went, and he started sharing, and they said, what's this seed picker doing, you know? I mean, we, I could preach a whole sermon on that. It's, it's just amazing. Paul said, look, you know, I was walking around your city, uh, and I noticed you guys are superstitious, and you're religious because I saw this altar to the unknown God. I'm here to tell you about that God that you didn't know, but that you should. One observer said that there you were more likely to meet a false god in Athens than a person because there were 30,000 idols and 10,000 people. Paul saw that and he broke his heart. So what does that tell you? When there's idols, there's idolaters, and that means there's Christ rejectors, and that should deeply trouble us. It should break our heart. We should be in deep sorrow and unceasing anguish. Paul was, and you say, well, yeah, he was an apostle, but listen, we're missionaries too, aren't we? We're supposed to be ambassadors. I shared that quote with you last week. Charles Spurgeon said there's only two, two kinds of Christians, missionaries or imposters. Only two options you got. Are you living on mission for Jesus or are you kind of doing your own thing and, and living in disobedience? And I, I get it, man. I know that's a gut check. I'm preaching to myself and I'm inviting you to be convicted with me, right? Because I know 
if we were to raise our hand and hold up the fingers, how many unbelievers are you in a network with that are close to you, that pay attention to you? I know we would have three, four fingers up in the air. We got neighbors, we got colleagues. Some of you people under the same roof you're living in are, are in unbelief. And it's easy to get irritated, to get put off, to want to create distance. And sometimes it's appropriate to do that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I know there's complexities with that. But our first reaction should be, that breaks my heart, because that breaks God's heart. And now I'm willing, what am I willing to do about it? How can I meet them in their unbelief? Not accommodate their unbelief, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, just because you love somebody and you're making a sacrifice with, for them, you're not agreeing with them. I'm not in agreement at all with the worldviews that are being promoted by unbelievers right now, and you shouldn't be either, but there's a way. There's a way to still express grief and make sacrifices for them. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 4, he talks about being homeless, buffeted, mistreated, counted as scum of the earth. Why? For the sake of God's people scattered abroad, that he'd bring the saving gospel to them. What's crazy about Athens, when Paul was there, he had just left Berea and had just been ran out of Thessalonica, and he had been stoned, not the kind of stoning that some people get. He'd been stoned at Lystra and left for dead, Right? So he had been running, man. He'd been, he went in every city he could, and he was just relentless. Indefatigable is the word. He wouldn't stop. He was relentless. He was tireless. His heart was broken. Paul viewed himself as a debtor. You know, it's been a long time since we were in Romans 1, but I, just, I wanted to read this. This was in the first chapter of the book we're in. This is what Paul said. I am under, what's that word? Obligation. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteousness of the righteous shall live by faith, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul had a perspective there. He viewed himself as under obligation. He viewed his message under divine power, and he viewed his audience under divine wrath. And I think that can be a super helpful template for laying over our life. Do you view yourself as an ambassador for Christ? Do you view yourself as under obligation? Do you remember that the message we hold, it has a power? Look, we can't convince it. This is, this is a really humbling point, guys. You know, Paul had incredible reasoning powers. He could, he could leave an agnostic in tears if he wanted to. Paul could do a lot of things. He had a direct connection to God. He was an apostle, saw the risen Christ, had powers to heal and raise the dead. But you know what he couldn't do? He couldn't resurrect a dead heart. He couldn't make people believe. That's humbling. That's really humbling, and look, maybe this is the point the Holy Spirit wants to press on us today. You know, one of the most terrifying things to me when God began to open my eyes as a young man to the realities of Christianity and judgment and the gospel is that I'm going to stand before God all by myself. It doesn't matter what pedigree I have. It doesn't matter what my household was like. It doesn't matter. Of course, those things come into, come into account. To whom much is given, much is required. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But my mom and dad aren't going to be holding my hand on Judgment Day. It's just me and God. Me, naked and open for, before the eyes of, of him with whom I have to do. 
You can't repent and believe for anybody else. That's a sobering reality. Paul wishes, he wishes he could trade places with them, but God didn't set it up that way. God said, you can't believe for them. You can't repent for them. You can share the message with them. That's where the power's at. You can weep for them, and you should. We should all be, in a sense, weeping prophets, right? <laughs> but you can't make anybody believe. You can pray for them, and you can be brokenhearted, and you can and should make every sacrifice you can to help them. In another place, Paul said this. I think I have it here somewhere. Yeah, this is what he said. I have made myself a slave to all. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To them that are under the law, as under the law. To them that are without law, as without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might, by all means, save some. I do it all for, who do you do it for, Paul? Why do you do that? Why do you live life that way? I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. I think, my friends, as Christians, as ambassadors, there should be marks in our life where we're doing this. We're saying, you know what? I'm not going to compromise my message for a minute, but I'm going to do all I can to accommodate. That's a dangerous word for so many. It scares people to death. They think, oh, yes, come on. No, 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 no. Listen, there's a word. It's called contextualize, and some people get in fits over it. You know, it's contextualized means you are doing everything you can to make the message understandable to people who live in 2023. When you change the message, you're in deep trouble because the message has power as is. You don't tamper with the message. The message is the only thing the Holy Spirit's going to use. The Holy Spirit will only use the gospel to save people. The message about Jesus coming and living a, a righteous, blameless life dying a substitutionary death, rising from the grave, ascending to heaven. That's the only message he will use to save people. But to help people understand that message, how far are you willing to go? We should be willing. We should be willing to sacrifice. There's a story that, that reminds me of this. I don't know if you've heard of it. Earlier this month was the 80th anniversary of the second worst sea disaster of World War II. In the early morning hours of February the 3rd, 1943, the SS Dorchester was hauling 904 soldiers through the icy waters of the North Atlantic. Of all places, they were going to Greenland, and there were German U-boats all over the place in those waters, and they had been warned to go to sleep with their life jackets on and full uniform, but because the temperature on, on the the boat, especially next to the engine room, was hot. Many of them didn't do that. So when a U-boat sent a torpedo in the middle of the night, just after midnight, and hit the, the boat, it knocked out the electric system, so everything was instantly submerged in darkness, and it started taking in water, so they all knew that the boat was sinking. And I imagine that. You're asleep, and you awaken to this loud boom, and you're plunged into darkness. Icy water is circling around your feet. You're in the middle of this boat. You can't see anything, and people are panicking. I mean, that's the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? And there's 904 of you and your comrades. She was hit. It knocked out the ship's systems, and all the sailors were sent into a panic, and the massive ship began to sink. Life expectancy in icy waters is 20 minutes. I don't know if you're like me. I always think, ah, I think I could last an hour. No, 20 minutes, 20 minutes, regardless of what Leonardo DiCaprio says. I need you to swim. I need you to swim. Doesn't matter. 20 minutes. All right. Four army chaplains 
who became known as the Immortal Chaplains or the Dorchester Chaplains, were on board that night. George Fox, Alexander Good, Clark Poling, and John Washington. And they saw in the midst of this panic to calm, to steadily calm all the men that were on board there. They organized an orderly evacuation of the ship. They helped guide wounded men to lifeboats. And some they gave as best guidance they could to jump overboard because there wasn't enough lifeboats. And then they began to pass out life jackets to all the evacuees. Evacuees, But very soon everyone realized that there's not enough life jackets to go around. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That always happens. The supply ran out, and so multiple witnesses attested to seeing every one of these chaplains calmly remove their own life jacket and give it to somebody else. They even removed their gloves and put them on the hands of others. They helped as many men as they could in the lifeboats, and then they linked arms. They began to recite prayers. They sang hymns, and they went down with the ship. And many of the survivors told stories about those chaplains. They said they seemed to be everywhere until the very end, doing everything they could to give all the people around them the best possible chance they could to survive. Why? Because they knew so many of those men did not believe. They did not have the same hope that those men had. One guy said this, as I swam away from the ship, I looked back. The last thing I saw, the four chaplains, they were up there praying out loud for the safety of everyone else. They had done everything they could. That's what stuck out to me. They couldn't save everyone's life, but they could do what they could. They could give up everything they had. They could make every sacrifice for the unbelievers around them. He says, I did not see them again. They themselves did not have a chance without their jackets. Those men really lived like evangelists. They were insiders living for outsiders. Now listen, that's our motto at Grace Life Church, right? I hope and I pray, man, it's, it's more than just something to put on which we do. We put on t-shirts and wear it, man, just as a reminder. That's our liturgy, where the insiders exist for the outsiders. Because listen, everything else we can do in heaven, and we can do it better, and it'd be easier, right? The one thing you can't do in heaven is shed more tears, because every tear is going to be wiped away in heaven. Nobody's grief is going to hijack our joy in heaven. So weep when you're down here, and sacrifice while you're down here. Be in unceasing sorrow and continual anguish while you're down here. Because when the roll is called up yonder, as they say, it's done. That's it. No more evangelizing. It's over. So, point three. See, I'm finishing the sermon today. Are you guys happy? All right. Who's clapping? Who's clapping? <laughs> My son's clapping. Man, that's a humbling. <laughs> Last point. How have you responded to your spiritual privileges? Oh, I get to get in your kitchen now. This is where I get in your kitchen. So check this out. This is what the Apostle Paul is trying to teach. He was saddened. He was brokenhearted. At some level, he, at some level, he was brokenhearted. Uh, at another level, there was, there was some shock and some surprise, right? Because of all people who should have, who should have embraced Jesus as the Messiah, who should it have been? It should have been Israel. It should have been the Jews, and Paul tells us why. Check this out. Look at this. I think I have it up here. Yeah, there we go. They are Israelites. Now, even that right there. He doesn't say they're Jews. He doesn't say they're Hebrews. He uses the name Israel that we get in Genesis 32 when Jacob wrestled with an angel of the Lord, which turned out to be God, all night, and he was able to prevail, and God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. 
one who strives with God and prevails. So to be called an Israelite was in and of itself a privilege. It was a privilege. God has set you apart. He's selected you out of all the other people on the face of the planet. God has set his favor on you. Israel was called the apple of his eye. Now, I'm told, Cliff, you can correct me here. You may know, being interested in all things Jewish. The apple of the eye. Isn't it that when you look in a mirror, the apple of your eyes is the reflection you see, and it's a little person in there, right? Like, that was Israel's place in God's economy, is that they were, they were favored by God. Even though it's, it's mind-blowing because God does not show partiality, but he had selected by his sheer grace and sovereignty this nation with, father, with Abraham uh, being the father. He called them out, set them apart, and gave them a spiritual privilege. So check this out. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship. And the promises to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So here's what Paul's doing. He's listing all the privileges. This is not just, it doesn't just make what Israel did by and large, rejecting Jesus as their Savior. It doesn't just make it tragic. It shows it was cosmic betrayal. It was cosmic betrayal. They should have seen their Messiah that came to them. He was the fulfillment of all the promises, all the things that the patriarchs talked about had their fulfillment uh, in Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus had to be born because he became a man. He had to have a race and an ethnicity, right? And Jesus was what? According to the flesh. He was a Jew. Jesus was not a Gentile. Jesus was a Jew. So, I mean, it's, it's as if God did everything he could to accommodate the Israelites to say, look, here's your Messiah. He's one of you. He's Jewish. He's your kinsman according to the flesh. Nothing that he says or does will violate any of the scriptures. In fact, he will fulfill them. All the Israelites had these privileges. They had the temple. They understood how to worship God. I mean, how many people are clueless and walking in the dark? How do you worship God? What does he expect? What does he require? The Jews knew. He requires blood sacrifice. Cliff preached that sermon about the temple, right? It was a picture of your sins being covered, but Jesus came and he was the lamb who took away the sins of the world, right? They had that privilege of all the people on planet earth. They had the adoption. They were called sons. Israel was called out of Egypt, my son, right? Think of how privileged they were. Now, I want you to think of this. I want you to think, because everyone's talking about privilege these days, and a lot of the talk makes people angry and uncomfortable, right? Let's talk about spiritual privilege. How about that? What spiritual privileges have you sat under and been exposed to living in the West, whether you're, uh, you know, I almost said Native American. What I meant was Native of America, whatever. Whether you're Western or just grew up American or whatever, what privileges have you been exposed to because of your unique situation and circumstances that so many other people in the world aren't privy to? Have you thought about that? Did you know I may have mentioned this last week. There are 380,000 churches in America. Now, I know we can say, well, most of them are. Okay, I get it. I get it. I know. I know. Trust me. But there's 380,000 churches to choose from, and many of them have a website. You can go check out their doctrine if, if that's your thing, right? And it should be, by the way. You can see their staff, their leadership. You can watch their sermons. Do you know 4.3 Bibles per household is the statistic in America. 
Do we have access to a Bible? Well, you got 4.3 in your house probably. I don't know how the point three thing works out. <laughs> 80% of Americans have a Bible. I don't know if they read it. I'm pretty sure a lot of them don't. But that's staggering, guys, when you consider it, isn't it? That's a staggering reality. Do you know that you are one click away from hearing sound doctrine from an articulate pastor of your choosing? Now, I'm not, some of these are privileges, some of these are liabilities. I get it. I understand that. All I'm saying is, to whom much is given, much is required. That comes out of Luke 12. You know, Jesus told a parable to his disciples, and it was about being ready. You never know when the master of the house is going to come back, and when he comes back, may he find you faithful and walking in obedience. And Peter, perceptive Peter, he said, question, are you telling this parable to us or to other people? And then Jesus gave that enigmatic answer that he always gives. He says, well, Peter, let me just tell you this, to whom much is given, much is required. And you know what he's saying to Peter? You've been given a lot, Peter. You've walked with the flesh and blood version of the Messiah in his 33 and a half year earthly ministry. Can you imagine? You know what Jesus said to some of the unbelieving Jewish crowds? He said this. He said, woe to you, woe to you who have seen and heard in person with your own eyes the Messiah and yet have rejected the message. He said, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to rise up on the judgment day and they're going to call this nation to an account because if they would have seen the things that you have seen, he meant miracles, manifestations, vetting that this is indeed God in flesh. Jesus is the Son of God. He's deity. He says things nobody else could say. He does things nobody else could do. He receives worship, which would be forbidden to any other human, right? He says, woe to you. You've seen things other people long to see. Had they seen them, they would have repented long ago. He said, if the mighty works that were done in you would have been performed in, in tear and sighing, they would have repented in dust and, and, and ash cloth long ago, or dust cloth and ashes. Got that backwards. And I, I can't help but think of us. Not just as Americans, but people that just, I'll just put it this way, people of great spiritual privilege. Because if we had to stand before God and give an account of what we're doing or what we're not doing, I mean, I just, I think our excuses are really thin and really flimsy. I really do. What do we, I mean, what version of the Bible do you want? We got like 38 versions now, don't we? And I know some of that can be a liability, but, but goodness, it's as if God has accommodated. He said, you want, it in, you want it in shoe leather? You want it in your common language? Eugene Peterson wrote the message. You want a paraphrase? You got the NIV. You want word for word? You got the ESV. You got the New American Standard. You want to go King Jimmy with the red letter edition? You got the thee and thou and whithersoever. Whatever you need, there's a version of the Bible suited specifically for you, right? Uh, you're like, well, I just wish I had good teaching. God's like, YouTube. Now, God will probably say, don't go there, right? This, this, you guys get the point, right? How many Christian bookstores do we have? CBD.org. I get a publication in my mail. A lot of it grieves me when I see the things that are out there. But nonetheless, the point is, we are a people under great spiritual privilege. We've had awakenings in our nation before. We got one maybe going on right now in Kentucky. It's just amazing, man, the, the privileges that we sat under, the great light that we've been given. I really believe that. To whom much is given, much is required. That's why I broke Paul's heart. Well, I wanted to close with this because the problem that a lot of the Jews had is they, they felt like they would be betraying their countrymen to, to believe in Jesus. 
Um, Michael Wyckoff gave me a book a couple of weeks ago. How many people have heard of Keith Green? Anybody ever heard of him? Not very many of you. I heard of him, but I didn't know who he was, and I'm reading this book. It's a, it's a, like a 500-page book, and I was like, oh, great. I got to read it because I love Michael. He gave it to me, and I can't put the thing down, and uh, Keith Green was a hippie, basically, and he met a girl who was a hippie named Melody, and uh, he courted her, and he married her, and man, they did all kinds of, they were in the New Age stuff, LSD, tripping, smoking hash, marijuana, New Age movement, they did it all searching for spiritual answers, and finally, Keith went to a Bible study where Sarah and I were, were, lived in California in Van Nuys, uh, and he went to a Bible study, and the guy shared the gospel and said, if you're interested uh, in, in following Jesus and becoming a, a, a disciple and giving your heart to Christ, raise your hand, and Keith Green put his hand, uh, put his hand in the air, and his wife, Melody, I wanted to read this, I wanted to read this account of you. His wife, Melody Green, a Jew, so there, here's the conflict there. She was a Jew. She was processing everything. She writes, I just couldn't get my arm to move. One part of me wanted to jump up and shout, Jesus, I want you. Please forgive me. But another part of me was sitting back, observing the whole scene and saying, no way am I going to do this. I'm Jewish. We don't believe in Jesus. As the meeting closed, we had to leave right away because Keith had a gig that night. On the way out the door, someone said, I'm glad you came tonight. I've been praying for you. It was a guy we'd briefly met at a birthday party a few months ago, and I couldn't believe he's actually been praying for me. I've never met any, anybody in my whole life that told me that. I thanked him and wondered why he'd want to pray for a total stranger and what kind of things he was praying for. That week was one of the longest I've ever spent. I wrestled with so many questions. I thought about Keith and how he was willing to let go of everything in Christian science. Keith had dabbled in that too. He was willing to let go of everything in Christian science that didn't line up with the Bible truth. My dilemma was different. I could never convert to another religion or let go of being Jewish. Being Jewish felt like a literal force pumping through my veins, woven into my DNA. But as I pondered what I'd already read in the Bible along with my new studies, a few simple facts fell into place. And she just argues beautifully what, what Paul is saying here. First of all, Jesus was Jewish, she says, a rabbi. He taught in the synagogues, the 12 apostles, the elders, Jesus' family, and essentially all of his earlier followers were Jewish. God sent the Redeemer to the Jews because they believed in the one true God, while everyone else worshipped stones and idols and things like that. It also seemed clear in the New Testament that following Jesus was the most Jewish thing a Jew could do. I was stunned to realize it was the Gentiles who were making a switch if they wanted to follow Jesus. They were being grafted into the root of Judaism. On top of all that, I'd recently learned that Jesus fulfilled more than 3,000 Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, including where he'd be born, that he would be rejected, and how he would die through crucifixion. And then she talks about Isaiah 53, a Jewish prophecy that described Roman crucifixion in stunning and shocking detail. She says, I read it over and over again all week, and it pretty much sealed the deal for me on the Jewish side of things. But maybe the most important thing I learned, she wrote, was that the closer I got to Jesus, the more my spirit was coming alive. The more I opened my heart to him, the more excitement and genuine peace I was experiencing, more than I'd ever known. So by the end of the week, she writes, I had what my heart needed. I'd made what I called the Jewish connection. I wouldn't be betraying my Judaism to follow Jesus. Yes, I would receive Jesus as the promised Jewish Messiah for all mankind, it suddenly seemed foolish not to. Finally, I realized that I could totally follow Jesus and still be totally Jewish. 
And so she did. So, man, that's incredible because it lines up exactly with what Paul is arguing for. So let me, let me close out with just a gospel connection here, okay? We've talked about really three things. We've talked about anguish. We've talked about sacrifice. And we've talked about, what was the last thing? Thank you, testing you there. Thank you, my wife. <laughs> Think about Jesus. Did Jesus agonize? Did he agonize over the unbelief around him? You better believe he did. He agonized in the garden, didn't he? Because he knew what it would take to tear down that barrier between sinful man and a holy God. He was in agony. He drank the cup, that bitter cup of the wrath of God. And he said, Father, if there's any other way, and he sweat drops of blood in the garden. So he agonized, yes. Did he sacrifice for unbelievers? What did Jesus do? He made the ultimate sacrifice, right? Romans 5, we studied this earlier. It says, when we were weak, when we were sinners, when we were enemies, Jesus died for us. That's the ultimate sacrifice is to lay down your life for rebels, right? Lay down your life for your enemies. Some good people might lay down their life for their friends, but would you lay down your life for your enemies? Jesus did that. And privileges. Think about Jesus in heaven. Did he have to come down here? I mean, in one sense, he had to because there's no other way for us to be reconciled. But did he have to? Did somebody force him to? No, they did not. Jesus was in heaven. He was in glory. He had spent all eternity with the Trinity in perfect fellowship and unity with them. And for the first and last time ever, when he came down here and hung on that cross, fellowship was broken. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the ultimate, almost rejection of privileges. He left his lofty throne in heaven, laid aside his, his divine prerogative and came down here and became weak and vulnerable and allowed himself to be killed, murdered, executed, betrayed, and banished for you and I. So here's the question I want to end with. How have you responded to that? Have you responded to that? Have you even thought very deeply about that? It's like, you know, I think that I can trust someone who did that and give my life to them. I don't think he's ever going to betray me. He won't. He won't. Jesus is the Messiah who gave his life for you. And you know what? If you're an insider, consider those three things. Are you agonizing over the unbelief around you and inside of you? Are you making sacrifices to reach those people? And third, what spiritual privileges are you sitting under and are you living up to the life that God gave you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time. I thank you for this passage. Thank you for helping us get through it today. Thank you for the patience of everyone here, Lord, just to, to go deep for just a few minutes. Thank you for all of those privileges we have. Living in, in 2023, living in Americans, having the freedom to worship, not under the threat of, not yet at least, persecution or somebody busting in here and arresting us, Lord. It's the law. We can do this by law, legally. Thank you so much for that. We take it for granted, Lord. I pray that it is a blessing and it's not a burden and a liability that we'll be held accountable for because we didn't utilize it. Thank you for all the people you've brought here today. I pray that we've all been touched and moved, Lord, and would consider the next few moments the message we've heard and that you would bless it to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, listen, Kyle's going to play a song of reflection. We call it our Selah song. We don't pass an offering plate. There's a donation box in the back. You can fill out a connect card there. If you have a prayer request, you have a question, you want to get counseling, you want to be baptized, you want to talk to somebody about being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus, that's totally open to you. We also have a prayer team in the back during this song. If you want to slip back there and talk to us, 
confess a sin, ask a question, cry with us, pray with us, nothing's off the table. Or if you just want to hang out and wait, you don't want anybody to see you or mess with you, that's fine too, we'll be around. But this is your time to just ponder and reflect deeply on what you've heard. Read those verses to yourself, open your Bible, and pray and ask God, what are you trying to show me here? And if you cannot remember a time when you really got serious with God and said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I can resonate with what those people are sharing. I feel empty. I feel guilty. I feel misunderstood. I feel condemned. I just want to be right with you. I want to be made whole. I want to have hope. I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to be right with God. I want to have the hope of eternity with you. Please, please come and talk to one of us or hang out here and come and meet me. I'd love the opportunity to follow up with you.